All right, Matthew chapter 21. We've gone as far as verse 20. Continuing our verse-by-verse study in Matthew. Keep in mind that Jesus in this, this final section of Matthew, that he is in his final week before his death and burial and resurrection when he will rise on the first day of the week. He's in Jerusalem. It is Passover. And you recall that in the book of Exodus in chapter 12, that is, the children of Israel about ready to leave Egypt after 400 years of being there, that the Lord said that you are now a nation, and I want you to, on the 10th of Nisan, that you pick out a lamb, pick out a lamb that is without spot and blemish from your flocks, and that you're to keep that lamb till the 14th. And they would inspect that lamb to make sure there was no spot or fault or blemish in the lamb. But at twilight on the 14th in the sun, you were to kill that lamb. And you were to sacrifice that lamb for Passover, apply the blood on the doorposts and the lintels of your homes. And by the way, as they did that, it made the form of a cross. And then when that death angel passed over, uh, those who had applied the blood, that they would be safe. We know that Jesus now, 1,500 years after that time, comes in as the Passover Lamb of God. And it was John the Baptist that had declared out there at the Jordan, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And he comes into Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan, on the first day of the week, as Passover begins. And he comes in riding lowly on the back of a, a small donkey as the people are, uh, the city being moved, as Matthew, we read, uh, great multitudes that are there and they're waving the palm branches and they are ascribing to him the title of Messiah. Hosanna, save now, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But as we know that the religious leaders seeing this, that they were complaining, tell your disciples to be quiet. And Jesus, though, he was weeping because he said to them, according to Luke's narrative, that you have missed the day of your visitation. You didn't know it, you should have known. That Messiah is on the scene. And he knew that in a few short days that they would be crying out, crucify him. We will not have this man rule over us. And we know that Jesus going to the cross because he would be the Passover lamb of God. Without spot or blemish, the one who knew no sin became sin for you and for me. That we might become the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. And as we apply the blood... As Jesus, he would go through the sufferings of the cross. And as he hung on that cross, he cried out, it is finished. I paid the price. I've done the work. And as we come in faith to him, and as we apply the blood of Jesus Christ, being cleansed of our sins, then we pass from death to life. So Jesus coming for that very purpose, and we know that he would go into the magnificent temple, and he overturned the money changers' tables and those who had sold animals for sacrifices. Mark, in his account of the cleansing of the temple, said something quite amazing that he actually stopped the merchants from using the temple for their transactions and business. And the religious leaders, 
They are very angry. And we're going to read once again that the chief priests and the elders are going to confront him. And as we see, they're inspecting him, if you would, trying to find blemish and fault and trying to reason to accuse him. But he's going to pass with flying colors. He's going to be declared to be innocent, even by Pilate, who on three different occasions would say, there's no fault in this man. Even Judas, who betrayed him, said, I betrayed innocent blood because he passes. He's the lamb of God, the perfect lamb of God. And they come and they're confronting him. And trying to find fault with him, first of all, concerning his authority. We'll talk about that today. Then they're going to come and try to find fault with him concerning his integrity. And then they're going to come and try to find fault with him concerning his theology. And Jesus had already told his disciples that the chief priests and scribes are going to condemn me to death. And I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. And I will be put to death, but I'll rise again after three days. The chief priests were the priests of high rank and authority. They would make up what was called the sect of the Sadducees. The Pharisees, the separated ones, would include some of the scribes. They were ones dedicated to keeping the most minute details of the law. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, 70 members of them, presided over by the official high priest, Caiaphas, at this time would make up what was known as the Sanhedrin Council. And Jesus, we have seen, not only did he cleanse the temple, but he was also healing in the temple. And we're going to see today that he's teaching at the temple. But before we see that, remember that last week we ended with Jesus rebuking the fig tree as he was there in Bethany. He's coming in the morning early back to Jerusalem. He sees a fig tree, has a lot of leaves, but there's no figs on it. So he curses the fig tree. And we talked about how that was an indictment against the religiousness of the leaders. And it was also, as we're going to see, an opportunity to teach his disciples about prayer and faith. God's house was to be a house of prayer. And the leaders were to be a believing people but they are rejecting the very one from heaven that was sent to them. So as we pick up our text at verse 20 of Matthew chapter 21, and when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believe in, you will receive. So Jesus, using this event to, uh, of the withered fig tree to teach his disciples and you and me this morning about faith, trusting God, that he hears our prayers. Now remember that Jesus is talking to his disciples. And we have seen as we've been journeying through Matthew what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You remember that there was one that came to Jesus, and there was a couple individuals. They said, we will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no way where to lay his head. And he would say to them that you need to put your hand to the plow and not look back, that you need to come and follow me, even as he told the rich young ruler, as we saw a couple weeks ago, that you are to go and sell everything and come and follow me. And we talked about in detail the lesson of that, 
that that man had a problem, the rich young ruler, of coveting. And Jesus has said, if you want to be my disciples, you need to die to self, pick up your cross, and follow me. And what can happen in our lives is we can be so focused on self. We can exalt self. We, it's all about self. And Jesus says, for you and for me, that we are to die to self, pick up our cross, and follow after him. They are arguing at this time and will continue to clear up into the time that Jesus spends his last night with them in that upper room. Luke tells us they come into the upper room arguing who's the greatest. It has started about six months prior to this. And Jesus is teaching them about being great in the kingdom of God. He takes a child. And he says, if you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, you must come in childlike faith. And you must continue in that as you're my disciple, that you walk in humility, that you are to be the servant of all. You don't lord over others. That's Gentile stuff. And he will, in that upper room, as they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest, because they're expecting him to usher in the kingdom. It was James and John that had their mom ask, can my sons be number one and number two in your kingdom? And Jesus in that upper room, right before he goes through the sufferings that we can never possibly imagine how difficult it was, how painful it was, that he teaches them a lesson about greatness as he girded himself with the towel and washed the feet of the disciples. And he said, do you guys know what I have done? What I have done is an example of what you are to do. That if you want to be great in the kingdom, then you need to be one that is washing feet. That you're willing to serve others. You see, keep that in mind as we read verses like this. Yes, there is power in prayer. Prayer to God, faith in God. I believe God hears our prayers. We have the privilege to be able to come in prayer. And Jesus said, ask, please ask that your joy may be full. We know that as we have the spirit of adoption, that we can come to our Heavenly Father, we can give Him our supplications, our requests, and He desires for us to do that. When we lack wisdom, James says, we are to ask for wisdom, and He'll give it to us, that as we come to Him and call out to Him, cry out to Him for comfort in our needs, we know that God wants us to come to Him because we have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. That is an incredible thing. And I want to have faith that God wants to work and can work in whatever situation that I am in, whatever challenges or needs that I have. It was the Lord that said to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, is anything too difficult for me? Of course, no, nothing is too difficult for him. And we know that God wants to do great things in our lives. But remember this. Nowhere do I see in God's word that we are to have the mindset or the heart of using the power of prayer, faith in the power of prayer, to fulfill our own lust and desire for things. I do not believe that Jesus has given us some magical formula for doing and receiving whatever we want. We have faith in a sovereign God, not in a celestial Santa Claus. God has provided in great ways. If you're born again by the Spirit of God because you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are more blessed than anybody in the world, anybody who's living for the world. I don't care how much money they have. I don't care how much prestige they have. You're a child of God, and you belong to a kingdom that will last forever, and you have a glorious future that is ahead of you. Always remember that we as Christians, we're the most blessed people on this planet. 
And he desires to continue to bless us, to work in our lives, to work miracles in certain ways and in circumstances. To see him do that is an incredible thing. But I also know this, that, Lord, I trust you as I come with my prayers. Here are my supplications. Here's my desires. That the great prayer of faith is, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Because you want the very best for me. And your word says that you will not withhold anything that is good for me. And if you are withholding anything from me, it means that you're saying no for whatever reason it might be. And as you live longer in the Lord, some of you, you know this to be true. There are things that I have asked for that, Lord, oh, I just beg for this. I, I, I plead you for this. And the Lord said no. And I look back and I say thank you. And I have come to understand that sometimes no is a very wonderful answer. Sometimes he says, wait. Sometimes he says, I have something better. He's teaching me. He's molding me. But I can trust him. I can rest in his love and what he's doing. And the Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Because you're the sovereign God that wants to do the very best for my life every day of my life. So Jesus here teaching them that lesson. And now in verse 23, he came into the temple and the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So Jesus, again, as he's teaching here at the temple, there's a large multitude that is listening to him. And the religious leaders, of course, they weren't teaching the people. They were taking advantage of the people. Matthew here tells us that as he's doing this, that, that they come and they interrupt him. They do this on purpose so they can confront him publicly, try to find fault with him. It's interesting that as is, he is teaching here at the temple, that Luke tells us that all the people were very attentive to hear him, that the people were hanging on to every word that he spoke, listening to every word. I pray that for you and for me, that you would continue in studying the word of God, to study the words of Jesus. What a privilege it is for us to come here on Sunday mornings to go through Matthew's gospel. Jesus said in John's narrative that the words that I speak are spirit and life. And we know there's a lot of voices that are out there. And we can put a lot of time, you know, and spend a lot of time in listening to those voices. You know, those who are on YouTube and those who are commentators and those who are talking heads on the news. And there's so much out there. But may we prioritize that, Lord, I want to hear from you. I want to hear from the Word of God. Because all Scripture is inspired. It is God-breathed, put to the page here. And it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for uh, correction for instruction in righteousness that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work and we have the word of God given to us that is absolute truth and we are to hang on to the words of the Lord the word of God given to you and to me may that be a priority yes we want to be informed yes we're going to listen to, to, to other people but may we hang on to every word that is given to us through the word of God and here they are saying by First of all, what authority do you do these things? And then who gave you this authority? You come into the temple. You upset the tables. You drive out those who buy and sell. By what authority are you doing this? And they don't want to know sincerely. We know that to be true. Because they, those religious elite, saw themselves as the only authority in Israel and that concerning the temple. 
They were, again, wanting to find fault, thinking that they could do this. And we know that as, you know, they asked that question, Jesus really had already answered them. In John's gospel, he said, I do nothing apart from my Father. I've been sent by my Father. I say nothing apart from my Father. The authority comes from my Father who sent me. And they rejected that. People will come to you and to me. And they will say, by what authority that you say that Jesus is the only way? By what authority do you say that he is the only provision for forgiveness of sin? By what authority do you say that I'm living in sin? Or what I'm doing is wrong? Or anything that the word of God gives to us? We have the authority of what? The word of God. That is our final authority. It is not our opinions. It's not our feelings. It's none of that. It's not what popular in culture, but the final authority that we have to speak truth into people's lives is the word of God that we can give to others. And I pray that we would use the word of God, that we are to speak the truth in love. And that's when we're really loving people is when we give them the truth of God's word, that I care about you, that this is how you can come to salvation. Be forgiven of sin. Have a relationship with God truly that comes through Jesus Christ. This is how you can live in a godly way. Whatever in the case may be in wisdom, you don't have to live in the darkness of the world, deception of the world, the weirdness of the world. But in love, we can give them truth because we have the authority of Scripture. Amen. And Jesus answered and said to them, as we continue reading in verse 24, I also will ask you one thing, which of you tell me, uh, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from, from heaven or from men? So here as they come and asking him, you know, what authority, he says, I'm going to ask you something. You know, John the Baptist, out there in the wilderness, Camel skin, clothing, his leather belt, eating locusts and grasshoppers. This fiery man who spoke with such boldness when he was baptizing three years earlier out there. Uh, was it from the Lord or was it just some guy that was out there doing his own thing? You know, that's a question that we can ask people. You know, when the subject of perhaps religion comes up, you know, from the people at work. And they know that you're a Christian. And they say, well, what about you, Christian? You know, what do you believe? And we can also, we can challenge people in a, very, in a very real way and say, who do you say Jesus is? Do you believe that he came from heaven? Do you believe that he's the son of God or was he just some religious leader, some moral teacher, some good, you know, historical figure that had a lot of good sayings and perhaps worked miracles. Who do you say that Jesus is? And so Jesus is asking them about the ministry of John the Baptist. And so they reasoned among themselves in verse 25. I picture the religious leaders as Jesus said, John the Baptist, his ministry, was it from heaven or was it just a guy doing his own thing? And all of a sudden, their eyes get big. They have this holy huddle. Well, please excuse us. And they're there and they're reasoning within themselves there in front of all these people. And if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. 
Here they are in their holy huddle. Well, if we say from heaven, then, you know, it's going to be, why didn't you believe John? The people will say, why didn't you listen to him? Believe him. What he was declaring. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, pointing to Jesus. Speaking of Jesus, the voice crying out in the wilderness, a fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah. But if we say from men, the people who are here, remember Jesus is teaching. There's a huge crowd there, and the religious leaders confront Jesus publicly, trying to accuse him publicly. Now the tables have been turned on them, and the people believe that John is a prophet, and we can't say that he's a phony, because then the people will turn on us, and they'll stone us, and we hate it when that happens. So they decide not to answer. They decide to cop out because they knew that Jesus had them in this dilemma. We don't know who they would say, and I can just picture, <clears throat> well, we don't know. And Jesus would respond, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You guys are not being truthful. You're refusing to tell. Give me an answer, so neither will I answer you. I think there's an important consideration and application for us here this morning. When they were more concerned about the consequences of their answer than the truth of their answer. You see, what we can learn is in our own lives, in the world in which we live in, society around us and the culture that influences us, See, they come to you and to me as Christians, and they demand from us what we believe. And when we know the truth, because we have the authority of God's word, but if we are more concerned about the consequences than our answer, you know what's going to happen? You're going to compromise. You're going to compromise. Well, I don't want to tell them about Jesus or the person of Jesus or the plan of salvation. I don't want to tell them about what the Bible has to say about biblical morality. And people will come at us, and they'll try to back us into a corner. But what can happen is we become more concerned about, I don't want them to not like me. Uh, I don't want them to, to come down on me. I feel like if I do, those guys at work as we're at the lunch break, as they're asking me these questions, uh, I want to be a part of the group. I, I, I don't want to be isolated. I don't want them to stone me or that is throw insults at me. And instead of using the scriptures and start to reason and to give them truth, remember this always, that there is power in the word of God. There is power in the gospel. And if we choose to cop out because I know what the Bible says, but I don't want to seem religious or judgmental or know-it-all, what did I mention last week? Those of you who are here, there's two things that we can give to people that the world cannot give, God's love and God's truth. We speak the truth in love. We don't have to be obnoxious. We don't have to be argumentative. We don't have to be you know, uh, pushy, any of those things. I love Jesus because he just responds in a very gentle, graceful, truthful way. He was full of grace and full of truth. You see, if it's just all truth and there's no grace, then you can be harsh. If it's just grace and there's no truth, then you're flaky. 
It is grace and truth and love and truth that go together that we can give to others and let the word of God do the work that it's going to do in the hearts of people because it's, it's like a two-edged sword piercing the hearts of people as you give it to them. But if we walk around and we go through life being more concerned about the consequences uh, of giving the word of God, then we're going to compromise. But I also want to say this. There's another application that is here. Sometimes people want further revelation from God, but are not open and obedient to the things that have been revealed to them already. You see, Jesus has revealed himself to them in his ministry, in his working. Remember that John the Baptist, when he was in prison, sent two of his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the coming one or do we expect another or we are to wait for another? And Jesus said, you go back and tell John the things that you have heard and things you have seen. And he's going to understand that, yes, that I am fulfilling what the Old Testament prophets would speak about concerning that Messiah is on the scene. It was Nicodemus, the master teacher of Israel, that came to Jesus in John chapter 3, came to Jesus at night and said that we know that you come from God because no one could do the things that you do unless God were with him. Here they are. They are not open to receive or accept what Jesus has been declaring, the works that he's been doing. They were heart of heart. They're saying that you do miracles by Beelzebub, you know, the Lord of the flies, by Satan. They're angry and they rebuked and, uh, because they were rebuked and corrected. And Jesus would bring that rebuke and correction to them publicly. And he did it there as he cleansed the temple. There is a very important lesson for you and for me here. And if I desire to have greater revelation of the truth and things of God, I've got to receive and be open and obedient to the things I've already have received and know. And I know that, that, that we as believers, we need to continually be saying, Lord, is there anything that I am not receiving what you have clearly revealed to me? If there's any area of obedience or attitude or hard-heartedness, Lord, help me be obedient to that. Help me to be open to what has already been revealed to me and obedient to it. And I believe that is where we receive more understanding and revelation of the Lord. So because they were disobedient to what has already been given to them, he felt no obligation to answer them directly. But he is going to answer them indirectly. He's going to speak a couple of parables to them. We're going to look at the first one here as we finish for the morning. But in verse 28, but what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. And then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, the first, and Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots entered the kingdom of God before you. How that much must have stung when he, they heard that. What do you mean, tax collectors? What do you mean, harlots? What do you mean, sinners? For John came to you in a way of righteousness, verse 32, and you did not believe him, but tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw, you did not afterwards relent and believe him. So Jesus telling the first of two parables, indirectly answering by whose authority and what authority I come and do these things. 
The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they had rejected the authority of the father who sent John the Baptist to be the forerunner, his son. And and you recall in Matthew chapter 3, that John out there baptizing at the Jordan, being the forerunner to the Son of God. All Judea is coming out to see him. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees come out to check out John. They come strutting down to the Jordan, and they said, Who are you? And John said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. And the religious leaders, all puffed up, proud, haughty mentality, wearing their long robes, the phylacteries on their wrists and on their foreheads, their noses in the air, representing all the power, all the prestige, all the authority in the nation of Israel. They controlled their religious life, and this man of the wilderness looked them right in the eyes, and he said, you guys are a brood of vipers. And don't think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. You religious leaders, you come down here, you think that God owes you a favor because you're physically related to Abraham. You better think differently. For God could raise up children of Abraham from these very stones. And you, being a physical descendant of Abraham, has nothing to do with your spirituality. And here in Matthew chapter 21, here is Jesus telling those religious leaders, you are like the second son which said to the father, I will go, but did not go. They gave lip service to the preaching of John, but they did not respond. They did not respond to the teaching of Jesus. And Jesus is telling them that you can't hide in your religiosity. Hey, we're the covenant people. We can't fall away from the Lord. You know, we we automatically were saved. And we know that Jesus is going to give a final rebuke when we get to chapter 23. That is a very, very strong rebuke to those religious leaders. I have met people over the years that they think they're a Christian because they were raised in a Christian home. If you were raised in a Christian home, you were tremendously blessed. You had a godly legacy and heritage that was given to you that I pray that you are thankful for. But I know that as Sue and I have done our very best, and we have four adult children, we did our best to raise our children in the ways of the Lord. It wasn't perfect to make sure that the Word of God was planted in their hearts, that they came to a place where they could hear the Word of God, that we would talk to them about the things of God. We would pray for them. But we always knew that the time would come when they would have to make it their own. And there are those who believe that they're raised in a Christian home, that automatically they're a Christian. You've heard me say this before, you've heard it from others, that God doesn't have grandchildren. He has children. And you have to make it your own. There are those that they think that they're Christians because they belong to a church. Their names are on the membership rule. Or they give to a church. Or they're a good person. You don't hear it so much today, but when I first became a Christian, there were those, you know, years ago, 20, 30 years ago, that they would say, I'm a Christian because I'm an American. You know, I I live here. This is a Christian nation. Now, we don't say that anymore, do we? You're a Christian because you've realized 
that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness. And there are those that will come and they will think because of my religiousness that I belong to the Lord, that I'm going to heaven, that I'm a child of God. Religion never saved anyone. Religion never saved anyone. And I know that as we talk about these things, you guys, you know what the truth of the scriptures are. But we cannot present our own righteousness before God. And we cannot say, well, I'm a Christian because I'm better than everybody else. Remember Paul in the book of Romans. He writes this incredible theology. He writes about in chapter 1, he gives the theme that I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation for all who believe. And then he tells us our need for the gospel. The one who's considered to be the heathen, you know, uh, they they need the gospel. But also, chapter 2, the one who is self-righteous, the one who looks to be so spiritual that they need the gospel. And then he says, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And then he begins to give the doctrine of justification. And in the doctrine of justification, as he gives that, he says that we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption of Christ Jesus. And as we realize that it is by faith that we are saved, then he talks about sanctification. But remember, in the last part of the book of Romans, in chapter 12, that he says that you, because of the mercies of God, present yourself as a living sacrifice unto the Lord. And as we present ourselves as a living sacrifice unto the Lord, the very first thing he says is, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. The foot of the cross is flat. He shows no preference to anyone. He's the respecter of no persons. We all need to come to the cross. And we ought not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, looking down at others, thinking, look at my religiousness. I'm better than everybody else. We're all sinners. And we can think that we're a good person, but we're not good enough. I pray for us that we would have a heart for people that are lost, that we would share with them the only hope that there is for them, and that is to repent and turn to Jesus Christ, just like we have done, and to recognize our need to be forgiven, and to call upon the name of the Lord. Isn't that wonderful good news that we give to others? And Father, I pray that as we, Lord, think about these things and consider them going through the Word of God, Lord, it isn't religion that saves us. It's relationship with you. Calling upon the name of Jesus. Calling upon him for forgiveness of sin. And Lord, I do pray that, that Father, that as we come this morning, if there's anything in our hearts that you've been revealing to us but we've been hard to it we're closing our years to it that Lord that we would allow you to penetrate the hard hearts and open our ears and our eyes spiritually because you want the very best for us Lord your word your commandments are not burdensome you want us to live in a way where we can experience your blessings to be free, to do well in our spiritual walk with you. Father, I pray that as we come here this morning, 
that also that we would be ones very grateful always every day for the salvation we have in Christ Jesus. That he's the one that finished the work on the cross. He validated everything he did on the cross by rising from the grave and conquering sin and death. And what we do in life, that we would do it because of our love for you, Lord. Not because we have to, not because we're trying to prove our spirituality, because we want to. And we're walking in the Spirit. And I pray for those who are listening, that are here in this place or listening online or perhaps later on the radio, that you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ, that he's calling you to come, to call upon him and be forgiven, to realize your need to be forgiven because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And maybe you're here and you're thinking, God can never forgive me of what I've done, all manner of sin he died for. He died for your sins, and he says, come. To be forgiven, to have a new heart and a new spirit and a new life. Become a new creature in Christ as you give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. To ask for forgiveness, to call upon him for your salvation. And today is the day of salvation. You can do that right now. You can pray, Jesus, I come and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on that cross for me and you rose again and you're alive. And I ask that you sit upon the throne of my heart as my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for dying for me, for this new beginning. I thank you for your love for me and for eternal life that is found in you. I want to walk with you and know you all the days of my life. And Father, I do pray for us as we leave this place that we would be light and give truth to others. That Lord, that we would love people enough to declare your word to them. So Lord, thank you for this morning. I pray that you would just bless our week coming up in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.